So we need to frame where we are. Uh, rumor has it that Romans is kind of an intense, sequenced book. And so it'll be good to set up these two verses by remembering where we've come from and maybe pointing ahead where we're going to go. Paul's just started this transition where he's talking about the issue of sin in between uh, what we might call his thesis in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And in that, he says something is revealed. And then right after that, he starts a new section where he's describing the sinfulness of humanity. And in, and in verse 18, the very next verse, he says right there that something else is revealed. Here something is revealed and something else is revealed as he makes the transition between the thesis. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. Uh, everyone who believes in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, he says. And then right after that, he says, the wrath of God is revealed. So revealed, you know what that word means. Now, there are sort of some technical things that or some nuancey things that you could talk about with that. But basically, if something is revealed, you couldn't see it, and then somebody uncovered it so that you could. Something is revealed, it's positioned so that now you can see it. So what's revealed? And Paul does this kind of juxtaposition between these two things as he transitions to talk about our sin and our need for righteousness. He says, uh, if you're going to see the righteousness of God, that gets revealed where? Where do you see it? You see it in the gospel. That's where it's revealed. And then he says, and then the wrath of God is revealed. You know, so it's positioned so that you could see it. Where do you see that? Well, you see that in people. Wow. He goes on to say, listen, these folks, there's no excuse. He'll say that a couple of times. He said that in the passage that Brad preached last week and at the very beginning of chapter 2. They are without excuse. It's not as though they were blindsided uh, when it comes to God's wrath. And here's why. Because when it comes to the truth about God, they had it. But they didn't like it, and so they suppressed it, right? They pushed it down. They opposed it. They, they were contrary to it. And, you know, this comes with a couple of features. So one is mangling glory. It took the glory of God, dragged it down, and elevated something else in its place. And then the other feature of this is this absurd trade-off. Absurd trade-off. The truth, they had it, but they decided, well, I don't want that. And so, you know what I want instead? I think I'd rather have a lie. The lie is nicer to me. You know, that's the idea. And the result, if you trade the truth for a lie, right? If you go on truth trading, uh, you're not going to think well. And it says, when it comes to their thinking, their thinking became futile. You ever... You ever met somebody who struggles with some form of dementia? It's one of the most frustrating, frightening things that a person can go through, right? They can never, no matter how hard they try, they can try to think through it, um, but they can't quite get their bearings. And what Paul says about somebody like this, once you trade off the truth and you decide your whole frame of reference is going to be something not truth, you're not going to think well. And he says about them in this, he says, their thinking became futile. That word means pointless. It's the idea that it always misses the point. You could think, you could do it, you could try as hard as you want, 
Um, you can make it even sound sophisticated, but no matter what, it's going gonna, it's gonna to miss the point. Your thinking is going to be useless. Um, you can't sin and stay unscathed. You reject God, maybe, but when a person rejects God, what happens is not the person minus God because you were made for God. It messes up your entire orientation. Let's call God, let's understate it. Let's refer to him as a key ingredient in what makes you, you. This is, uh, Carl Jung once said, you'll see this in your handout. He said, man is incurably religious. What happens if you reject God, you won't not worship. And that's what he describes here. You were made to worship. Man is incurably religious. You can see this throughout history. You just, people are going to latch onto something. You're going to reach out to something outside of yourself for yourself. You were, you were built that way. So if you refuse to worship God, you won't not worship. You will worship something, and idolatry comes in. And that's what this passage describes, this trade-off. What's the trade-off? This isn't new, by the way. Paul is writing in the first century. And he's describing it in his context, but you could go back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus. Uh, This is what God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, heaven above, sea below, all that stuff. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the rationale is this. God says, listen, I delivered you. And only I can, so idolatry is the height of evil. And it's not just because they owe God. It's because they need God. You know, they're made for Him. They're not suited for another purpose. So if you step outside of that, it messes up the entire orientation. Let me give you a, like a basic example of what I'm talking about. A book. Some of you are booky and some of you are not. Some of you are in between. But a book. Right? A book's a good example of this. Books are great okay, for their purpose. But I, I mean, I wouldn't write with one. I wouldn't try to fly in one, and I wouldn't try to wear one as a pair of pants. It's not what the book is made for. It's not going to function well or fulfill its purpose outside of that. And you might be, some of you are contrarians, I know you, and you're like, well, guess what? I've used a book as a doorstop. Yeah, but that's not what it's made for. We don't rank the greatest books of all time like best doorstop ever. You know, although if you're going there, a hardback of war and peace is the way to go. But anyway, you, you, don't, you don't rank it that way. That's not its purpose. Worshiping God is just what you're made for. If you refuse to worship God, you won't not worship. You will worship something. You will put something else in that place. And here's the insight early on. Sin is a worship problem. And worship problems dehumanize you. They don't... You, you don't get to sin and remain unscathed. It's like, like, listen, a guy trying to wear a book as a pair of pants, uh, you can ask him what the plot is, but he's probably not even going to understand your question. Okay? Sin is not like an act that stays outside of you. So this morning, for example, I got up and I walked from my bedroom to the kitchen. Okay? All I did was I didn't fundamentally change who I am. I, I just changed my location. That's it. Sin is not like that. Sin is something like if you're working in the lab without a mask and, and the act is pouring uh, liquid out of a beaker into something else. But, but sin is the exposure. That's the act. 
but it's more like the exposure to the virus that takes over your whole self. And there are two ideas here early on. Sin is a worship problem, and worship problems don't, or don't stay put. You were made to worship. Get it wrong, and it'll degrade you from the inside out. You can't do the act of sin and not have it affect you. So there's this big picture. Remember I said we're going to do kind of a big setup. When we look at what Paul is describing when he talks about human sinfulness, and part of what he's driving at is there's going to be this comparison. It won't take him too long to get to another element. He lives in a world filled with idols, writing from Corinth, a lot of idolatry there, writing to the city in Rome, a lot of idolatry there. There's a big Jewish presence also in these places. And he's going to say, you can look at the pagan world and their practices, and you can see exactly God's wrath come into effect. You can see human sinfulness on display. But you might go, this little peek ahead, well, what about those of us who have the law and set ourselves to keep the law? And he says, that won't justify you either. Every person, Jew or Greek, needs a way to become righteous before God. You're going to need a way to be justified. Idolatry is obviously not going to do that, but the law isn't going to do that either. So in these two verses, he starts with the pagan world. And he says, you look at verse 24, and it's what God did. God gave them up. And then verse 25, why he did it. Because they exchanged. They did this trade. So the three basic issues I want to talk to uh, you about today, and these are, these are the three, okay? Number one, let's talk about how to commit idolatry. I, I would keep that from you, but you all, spoiler alert, you, you already know how to do it. Uh, if you didn't know you know how to do it, I'll point it out, all right? How to commit idolatry, the danger of idolatry, and how to respond to your own idolatry, okay? I'm, I'm maybe assuming something there, uh, that you have a struggle you dabble in that area. So those three things. Let's start with how to commit idolatry. It's very simple. Uh, any sinner can do it. In fact, every sinner does it because idolatry is the heart of all sin. Here's what you do. And it could be anything, but you take something less than God. It could be anything. It could be something good. It could be your favorite thing. Probably is your favorite thing. You take something less than God and you put it in the place of God anything. Take something less than God and you put it in the place of God. Maybe it's something that's worthy of your love. It's still less than God, but you elevate it to that place. Uh, you can see this in verse 25. There's this exchange, right? If we're taking something less than and putting it in his place. What did they exchange there, that word? It means a trade. You got something and so you take what you have and you trade it for something else. Now, I grew up in a world of trading as a kid. So whether we had fishing lures uh, or baseball cards or something like that, you, you got your buddies together and you would compare this to that. But a good trade was kind of a, an even sort of fishing lure for a different kind of fishing lure, right? And hopefully everybody catches fish at the end of the day. Um, if you're a good trader, though, you see somebody who has a good lure and you can't afford that one, so maybe it's a little you know, rebel lure that you've been having your eye on, and you're thinking, man, that's a bass killer, and I'm going to get it. And so you, like, load everything up you can to trade for a lure. Here's the secret, though, in trading fishing lures. Uh, not to say you don't have experience in trading fishing lures, uh, but the big thing is, if you've got 10 lures that don't catch any fish, and the other guy has one that will, 
his is worth more than your ten. That one is worth more than your ten. What's the trade here? What are they trading? They traded the truth about God, and they decided, you know, because who needs that? You know what we want instead? We want a lie. It's obviously much more valuable. You can look up to verse 23, and what they traded was the glory of God. That was something that they exchanged for something that God created, something God made. It's inherently less. And what you're seeing there really is the object of worship. These are, this is the comparison. God or less than God. And they're doing it like this instead of God and less than God. So which one should we go through? And he's described, again, you can see the overlap in verse 23. God is truth, creator, eternal, blessed forever, self-sufficient, glorified, uh, worthy of praise, and, and uh, it's going to be worship. Or there's the less than God, the lie, the created, the lesser, and the mortal, the corrupt. I'm putting your hand out, Psalm 106, 20, so that you can see Paul's idea is not a new idea. What's he say? This, he says, they exchanged, there's that absurd trade-off again, the glory, mangling glory, the glory of God for the image, idolatry, of an ox that eats grass. Now, Psalm 106 talks about the, uh, the wilderness generation that, that came out of the Exodus. And you note the exchange. They, they traded off the glory of God for something else. And you have to ask yourself, well, was it for something greater than God and His glory? I got a question for you. It's a good uh, way to start off assessing. What does it tell you if the thing you worship eats grass? Okay, it's not even a tiger or something like that. It doesn't even eat steak, you know. But what does it tell you? Do you notice that at the end of that little verse there? You know, they traded it for this image that eats grass. Something that eats grass, eats anything, is not self-sufficient. The self-sufficient one they traded for something that grazes. The object of worship you were made for, taking that, trading it in for something else. What you realize is it's the worshiper who's out of whack. They elevate the lesser things. Great theologian in history, a guy named Augustine, he talked about this a lot. He talked about sin and idolatry, and, and he referred to it as this. It's a great way to think about it. He talked about it as disordered loves. Uh, it's, not, it's not the loving it, it's the out of order part of it, okay? It's this idea that you might love things, but it's all messed up, and it's all, uh, uh, you know, in disarray, your loves. So the problem is not that you love it. The problem is that you love it out of its context and that you love it out of proportion. Most of the time, an object of worship that's an idol is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's a good thing elevated to the ultimate thing. Every time you sin, you sin with a gift, you sin with something God has given you, something good that God has given you. So like I said, it's not necessarily an evil object. It's taking this thing that's just fine, maybe it's even good, and elevating it to the place that only God should have and acting it like it has his glory and his goodness and his power to save you, however you define the need to be saved. But you know you need to be saved. You know you need something outside of you for you to be okay. You're not inherently okay, so you're going to reach. That's worship. 
that's bowing down and serving. So what is it for you? Here's, here's the question at the end of this point. What are you tempted to elevate to the place of God? That lesser thing that you put up to the ultimate thing. This thing that you go, oh, this is going to save me. I know that's not the way you talk. I know that's not the way you say it in your head or in your heart. What you say is, I'm so desperate to be secure. I am so desperate to be happy. I'm so desperate to be important. That's the inner murmur, okay? What is it that's going to do that for you, that's going to fix things so that you are saved? Is it your career? Uh, Money? Relationship you have with your kids? Your marriage? Your beauty? Clock's ticking on that one. Your body and your health? Clock's ticking on that one too. Maybe it's the pursuit of pleasure, right? So you, it could be, we're going to see this in this passage, it could be the pursuit of sexual pleasure all out of proportion. Maybe it's the pursuit of, uh, you know, like there are people who, there's nothing wrong with resting. There is something wrong with making a God out of it, right? So maybe it's like relaxation or sex or the pursuit of food. Uh, some of you pursue food as the ultimate alcohol, weed, something stronger. You're so desperate for this to make you okay. You realize whenever you look at that, not one will hold, hold you up. Just evaluate it. How long will it last? Uh, where is yours? Where are you tempted to take a lesser thing and put it as your ultimate thing? Okay? How to commit idolatry. But like I said, you already know. Second thing, the danger of idolatry, okay? Danger of idolatry. You see this sequence in the text. It's right there. God's wrath occurs because they committed idolatry, and so he gave them up. It has the sense of being uh, given over to this consequence. Let me give you a couple of questions that are worth thinking about, okay? One is this. One is, how is it that we should understand God's wrath? And then the second is uh, a question about what's the connection to sexual immorality? So what's the... uh, Let's talk about the wrath question. How are we to understand God's wrath here? Here's the, the way it's described. People will ask this. They'll say, is it active or is it passive, God's wrath? Is it active or passive? There's an argument for each side. Okay, for example, if, it's, if you're on the side, and there's a reason that they argue about it this way, if you're on the side of it being passive, The way the argument sort of goes is something like this. God created a moral universe. And when he created this moral universe, there's a cause and effect. There's sort of a natural consequence when a person sins. It's built into that moral system. You do it, and it just has a kind of a natural effect. And then somebody else says, well, listen, I'm going to argue for the active wrath of God here because it doesn't just say that. It doesn't just say that they stumble into this or that it's a natural consequence. It says what? God gave them up. God did this. And so where do, why do we have this tension? So, where do we have this tension? So. Oh, it's right. <laughs> 
It's okay. You can take him to the back if he needs to sort it out a little bit, all right? So there's this back and forth. You know, you know we talked about the, the active part of God's wrath or the passive part of God's wrath, okay? And why is there a tension? I'll tell you in terms of this little debate here. <laughs> in terms of this little debate here. So part of it, they're, they're really arguing in defense of God, whichever side you're on. And here's one part of it. To say, uh, this is really passive and all that. What they're arguing for is they're saying, listen, God isn't capricious. He isn't somebody, uh, when offended, just uh, gets out of control when he's wronged and goes into a blind rage. You know, they're arguing for a, a kinder, gentler God. God is not like you. He doesn't have an anger problem. He doesn't need to go into anger management. God addresses the sin as it deserves. And you look at a passage like this, and it's evidence of that. The other side of it says, well, listen, what we want to do is we want to stand up for Scripture, what it says, regardless of modern-day sensibilities. And we look at this argument that God's wrath here is not directly connected to him. It's passive. He's, he's not actively doing it. And we see in this, this sort of deism and enlightenment of ideals be informing this view. And so uh, what we want to stand up for is that Scripture depicts idolatry and sin as awful evils. And it's not as though God doesn't care about that. He's on the record of caring about that, and he opposes it as he should. So which way should you see it? Is the wrath here that we see in verses 24 and 25, is, is God's wrath active or is it passive? That's a false dilemma. Okay? Um, the point is that they're not mutually exclusive. If you just went on this passage, you would say they're both there, aren't they? God is opposed to evil. That's a good thing. Okay, I get that it's inconvenient whenever you think of your evil. You don't like the idea that God is opposed to your evil. He is, and he should be. He's right to do that. But I want you to think of a greater evil. You can do that. Something that's despicable. Something that's awful. That only somebody who doesn't care about anything, doesn't have any moral sense, wouldn't care about. The worst kind of evil in the world. You have that in your head? Some kind of like child abuse or some kind of a terrorist act or whatever it is for you. But you think it's the height of all evil. Is God morally okay to have no opinion about that? For him to be a good God, he has to have an opinion on that. We see certain acts that will say that's horrible, and if somebody outside of, in your group basically says, I don't care, it didn't happen to me. I don't care, I have no opinion on this awful thing. We're going to judge them morally, right? We're going to evaluate them morally. God is opposed to evil. That's good. And there are natural consequences that come whenever your worship is distorted. You can't be you without God, right? This, this passage suggests both. Uh, it's not either or, it's both and. Real quick. We'll, we'll see if it's real quick. What's the connection to sexual immorality here? When we think about the danger of idolatry, we'll talk about this way more next week. But what we should say at this point is there is a connection here. You can see it in the passage, right? Uh, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See the connection? Bad worship, bad sex. Lest you think Paul is 
I don't know what your stereotype is, if you have one, but if you go, you know what Paul is doing? He's just being a Christian prude here on sex, you know, because those, those kind of people don't talk about this. Uh, by the way, the Bible is not prudish about sex. Um, it's not at all. Early in the book, it says this occurs by God's design. We're to enjoy it according to that design, and it doesn't take long for God to say, be fruitful. Kids, ask your parents later uh, what that means. So what do you think he might have in mind? If Paul is making this connection between pagan idolatry and sexual immorality, uh, and it is there, and if you lived in Paul's day, you would have admitted this. He's got in mind the worship practices in the world in which he lives. That's his immediate context. What, what would you think if you saw temple prostitutes? That's a euphemism for a sex slave. Okay? It's not a free, to use the morals of our day, it's not a free transaction between consenting adults there. What would you uh, think of whenever you thought about the abuse of children that was rampant in, in parts of the world? Nero's eunuch named Sporus, or pederasty among Spartans and elsewhere, sex slaves and fertility cults. You want a modern-day equivalent? What about the suicide rate among female porn stars? You know, that's being described, another euphemism, as, uh, as a mental health issue. Well, that's to say the least you could say about it. Obviously, there's a mental health issue there, but isn't there more to say than that? Is there not something that that world of exploitation could lead to or exasperate? Mental health issue, sure, but it's, it didn't occur in a vacuum right? Sexual freedom looks costly, okay? It's, uh, you might ask who's better for it. So Paul sees the paganism, the idolatry of his day, and he sees sexual misappropriation destroy all of its takers, like all of the mice gorging themselves on a very tasty, poisonous cheese. It's not the cheese, folks. It's the poison that does it. So just for now, I want you to look at this contrast. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And then Brad referred to it earlier. If you look ahead to chapter 12, verse 1, many of you know this. What does he say? Well, how are you to present your body? Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as an act of worship. You see the contrast? One ruins you and the other is what you're made for. All right, danger of idolatry. Two of the ways we can look at this. One is the most benign. You can look at the danger of idolatry in its limitations. The Bible doesn't do this here, but it does it elsewhere, where the Bible will talk about an idol being dead or mute or deaf or something like that. It's the most benign, but it's, it's really frightening uh, to think about it. Here's the thing. If you take a lesser thing and you raise it to the ultimate place, what can that idol give you? Well, it's not going to give you what it promises. That idol can only give you what it has. And you might go, but don't you see, I don't really want the Lord. I want this thing that this idol, you may not call it this, well, I want this thing that it'll give me. I want this relationship. I want this security. I want this kind of status. And if I have that, I'll have everything. No, you won't. You need a savior. You need justification. You need righteousness. Something less than God will not give you that. 
But let's, let's point to this passage. When you look at the dangers, it's not so much the thing as your affection for the thing. Right? Disordered love, bad worship, it darkens the mind. So it darkens and fogs you and uh, as you misplace your worship. It reduces and damages you. Prima facie case is that idolatry is self-destructive. Put it simply, you want to see your handout here, the danger of idolatry is this. You get what you want. You get what you want. There's nothing more self-destructive than that. If you just wonder, like, how, how do I see this? Well, just ask a little kid and go, what do you want? And I'll give you everything you want. You're the boss because obviously you know better, little kid. You know how to run the world. You know how to take care of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever you say, you just get what you want. Nothing more self-destructive than that. When I was a kid, um, this is, uh, uh, I think it was around Thanksgiving. That's the way I remember it, but I was pretty young. I was probably second, third grade, Hominy, Oklahoma, for those of you who chart these things. Uh, and so it was Thanksgiving, and there was, there was good food around, but there was not good supervision around. So it was like one of those family get-togethers, and my family lived in this small town. Our extended family did, and then we had people travel and stuff like that. So the adults just hung out, and they chatted, and the kids, we did kind of whatever we wanted to do. And they had it laid out. So there was good food, and then there was something. I'd never heard of this, German chocolate cake. Uh, I didn't realize. Had I known that there was coconut in the top of that thing, I would not have touched that thing, right? But I didn't know it was all covered in this design to lure you in, Ooh, like the siren singing to your taste bud. And so anyway, all of this was laid out. The adults were preoccupied with each other, and the kids were doing this foolish thing called playing outside. And so what I did was I looked at all the food that I could have, and I opted for the German chocolate cake. And I ate it, first time ever. It was so good, it was so good. And so I ate another piece. That was good too. And then I ate another piece. And I counted, as kids are wont to do. I may have miscounted in all my overconsumption, but I ate 13 pieces of German chocolate cake. That night, I vomited 13 times. <laughs> it was like the direct proportionality of an Old Testament prophetic warning, right? You consume and you, and then I didn't try German chocolate cake again for 13 years. So you see that nice <laughs> symmetry there. I looked both ways over my shoulder and I got what I wanted. And I hated it. I thought it was going to kill me. Idolatry is like that. C.S. Lewis describes, like there's a kind of self-enslavement that you get whenever you commit idolatry, that what you get, and it's its own punishment, you get what you want. And you just follow that to its logical conclusion. You ever notice whenever you read about the rich man and the Lazarus, that only one guy has a name? The other guy is just what he was. It, it dehumanizes you. It makes you less than what you're created to be. Re revisit this. At the beginning of verse 24, they do this great uh, exchange, this absurd exchange, and it says God gave them up. Here's what happens. This is the danger. You say to God, I demand to worship this instead of you. And God says, okay, you get exactly what you want. Consequences and all. 
You're going to give it this glory, but you're going to be devastated and frustrated and frightened that while you keep trying to get from it everything, your everything, what you're going to get is only these hints, only these little bits, or it'll give it and then it's gone, right? You'll end up empty and ruined because you were made to worship, but you were made to worship truly, right? That not just any worship will do. Why is true worship so important? Well, in part because worship informs everything. But it is illogical for you to think that God can save you outside of himself. There is no outside of himself. When people struggle with the wrath of God and wonder why the the consequences are so destructive, take God away from who you are and where is there to go? Who are you? What is the universe without the God who made it? All of it, including you. There isn't anywhere to turn. There's only the one who's self-sufficient and worthy of it all, and there's nothing outside of that. How in the world would God, it is illogical to think this way, how in the world would God save you outside of himself? But that's what the person who acknowledges the existence of God and, and chooses his idols instead, that's what he says. Their thinking becomes futile. There's not a real point to it. It's just going to take you to a dead end. All right, really briefly. How do you respond to your own idolatry? Well, the answer is obvious, right? Get your worship right. Get your worship right. They'll look at it like two sides of the same coin. I want you to do this. Just go through this mental exercise. We're going to put them equally, but you're going to realize they can't be equal. Detect the place of idols and respect the place of God. Detect the place of idols and respect the place of God. If idolatry is taking a lesser thing that on its own could be fine, and elevating it to the ultimate thing, then you got to get your worship right. It's, it's fine to love something uh, in the, to the degree and in the quality and in the place in which you get it. You should love your kids. If you make them a god, you're going to crush them. They can't bear the weight of that. You should love your spouse. If you make your spouse your god, you're going to crush that person. They can't, they can't bear the weight of your everything. Your spouse is not everything. Only God is everything. So here's what I want you to do. Look to God's rightful place in your life. Like, Just imagine it in your mind. This is where God should be, and only God should be. What do you see there? Is it, is it God in his glory, or is it a lesser thing that you've put in his chair? The only way to change this is through the gospel, where you appreciate that your Lord is also your Savior. Uh, You know, we see God's wrath as a consequence, at least in part, of being your own God. It's everything we want, and it's the worst thing that can happen to us. Better look elsewhere. If it's not to a lesser thing, you know, remember what Paul said before we ever got to these verses, where Paul said, I'm a minister of the gospel. Better look to the gospel. The gospel concerning his son, the gospel that is the power to save everyone who believes, so you can believe in something lesser. You can believe in your success, however long you think it'll, it'll keep. You know, you have a hero from history, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, somebody like that. You know what that guy is? Whoever it is for you, he's dead. Nobody cares. Nobody's scared of him anymore. You can believe in your success, you can believe in your healthy habits, you can believe in this relationship or your money or whatever else you'd fill in the blank, and it might be proper, uh, you know, in its place, or it might be good in its place, but here's the thing about those lesser things. Those gifts, 
Those good things in your life, they're, they're really great gifts, but they're awful gods. The spouse can be a great gift, but it's an awful God. Your kids can be a wonderful gift, but they're awful gods. Your money can be a nice blessing, but it's an awful God, and on and on and on. And your health, you're going to lose it one day. You better have a plan forever. So you can believe in something like that, or you can believe in God's Son who acted for you. Body broken, blood poured out so that you could be clean. But you will believe, and you will worship. It's just what? or whom. Let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed to have your word. Just give us the grace to receive it. Uh, Respect your place and your glory and worship and serve you and nothing else. Honor the gifts, appreciate the gifts, show gratitude for the gifts you give them, but never elevate the lesser things, the things of the created world to your place. Help us to do that for your glory, but also for our good. You are certainly worthy, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.